0: After a little while, in Luke 22, we have arrived at Luke 23. We are really at the most climactic moments of the gospel. The most climactic moment, not only of Luke's writings here, of Luke's gospel account written for us, but the climactic moment of the gospel itself. The center of the Christian faith. We talk about being gospel-centered, christ centered cross-centered people well now we are at the very pinnacle the very climax of it our confession apostles creed as you would say together he suffered under pontius pilate he was crucified he died he was buried on the third day he rose again he ascended to heaven all of this is going to happen in these last two chapters And so you can't really overplay, you can't really overhype the significance of where we are. To this point, as we've walked through Luke, we've seen Jesus Christ. We've seen His incarnation. We've seen His baptism, which launched Him into His ministry. We see as He begins His ministry, He is proclaiming kingdom authority. He is proclaiming kingdom power. He's raising people from the dead. He's also demonstrating kingdom characteristics of humility, of faith, of obedience to the will of God. And he continues in this ministry all the while proclaiming and serving as the true and the better prophet, better than Moses. He is the true and the better prophet, the true and the better priest after the order of Melchizedek, that one who is promised and is to come, the true and the better king, better than David. He will be the fulfillment of that Davidic covenant a king who will rule perfectly forever, a true and better sacrifice, better than the pure and blameless lamb, better than the bull that is brought. All of this now in Jesus Christ is reaching its fulfillment, is finding its yes in these next moments in the crucifixion, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And indeed, He suffered under Pontius Pilate. He died. He was buried. He raised again. He's ascended to the Father. And so Luke now, as we are in these final moments as he is leading to the cross, Luke wants to once again get a few things for us to see clearly. If you remember the purpose statement of Luke, all the way back the first four verses of Luke, in Luke chapter 1, I'll read it for you if you want to turn, you can. But Luke chapter 1, 1 through 4 says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, then in verse 4, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Luke, the gospel of certainty. And now as we come to the most significant moment, Luke wants us to be certain of a few things. Because if we have it wrong, if we get the cross wrong, then we are of all people hopeless. <laughs> If your faith isn't resting squarely in the accomplishments historically that took place, theologically what that means, in fulfillment of all of Scripture, if it's not resting squarely there, then there is no certainty and assurance in your faith. And so he wants to make certain four things for us this morning as we approach the cross of Christ. First, he wants to make certain that we know this. Jesus is innocent. Secondly, that Jesus is rejected. Thirdly, that Jesus' suffering and death is substitutionary. And finally, that Jesus is fulfilling the will of God. Now, I'll go ahead and tell you up front. We'll we'll spend... More time on the first one. Jesus is innocent, so don't get nervous if it feels like the first point's taking a bit of time Um, because Luke labors hard for this. But before we do, I I just to kind of create the picture and get a little bit of background so we understand who these main characters and players are that will allow us to really see what Luke is, is creating for us that we may know for certainty the innocence of Jesus. So it begins in, verse 20, in chapter 23, in verse 1, the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. you remember Jesus taken in the garden, he's brought in, he spends the night in the quarters, they bring him across the courtyard, that's when he catches eyes with Peter, after Peter's denied him, and they bring him to this council. If you look back at the previous chapter in verse 66, it says, "...when day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and the scribes, and they led him away to their council." So you have the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, you have the high priest there present as we saw earlier with um, Annas and Caiaphas, both in this kind of odd way serving as high priest. Um, I don't know if we covered this or not, but Annas was, was the high priest. He was kind of removed by Rome and Caiaphas was put into his place. But the people not liking this happened, they still sort of recognize Annas is the high priest. So you have both of these high priests operating. So all of these people here together in what is called the Sanhedrin or the council, made up mainly of Sadducees and Pharisees. And what happens here is nearly a miracle. It's about the only time in biblical history or history in general that you're going to read about the Sadducees and Pharisees agreeing on something. And that is that they hate Jesus. It's kind of like our current day political system, you know, where it doesn't matter what, if you're a Democrat or Republic or conservative, liberal, whatever. Once you take a stand, it doesn't matter what the other side says. You just have to disagree. And that's sort of how the Sadducees and Pharisees operate. And yet here they're finding common ground. And so they decide Jesus is a heretic. He needs to die. They probably would have put him to death themselves. But you remember they're a client state of Rome, and so while they have some political freedom and religious freedom, Rome alone has the power to put someone to death, and so their only uh, course of action is, let's take this one to Pilate, so they bring him to Pilate. A little background on Herod and Pilate, Herod is um, Herod Antipas, if you remember him from earlier. He is a tetrarch of the area of Galilee. All that means is he's kind of, he's almost like a puppet put over this area to sort of watch over this client state. His power comes in his name and his heritage. He's the son of Herod the Great. But in all actuality, he doesn't have a ton of, of power outside of just being a puppet for Rome. And he's over Galilee. We are introduced to him with John the Baptist. You remember John the Baptist is preaching against him because he wants to marry Herodias, who happens to be his niece. Really messed up situation. He uh, throws John the Baptist into prison, into a dungeon, because he is taking a stance against him marrying Herodias. And yet, in that time, there's this odd friendship relationship that develops, if you look at Mark 6, between John the Baptist and Herod, where Herod fears... John the Baptist, because there's this aura about him. He's such a straight-talking prophet that there, there is something about him he fears. And while he can't stand what he's saying, he also says that he enjoys hearing him talk. That's how Mark 6 puts it. Probably he's used to all of this flattery and lying and deceit around him and here's someone with an honest word. And so he protects John the Baptist a little bit. Um, you remember the story. Uh, they're having a party. Herodias sends her daughter in she dances, entertains them, and they're so impressed that they grant her one wish. And her mom convinces that wish should be John the Baptist's head on a platter. And so this is Herod, the one who who killed John the Baptist, who is curious about the things and yet very cruel. Pilate, on the other hand, is a prefect in the area of Judea, so he actually wields more significant power in reality than Herod would. He would have pretty much total military control and power of taxation in, in the area of Judea. In fact, you read secular history and there's an account where there is money that is being gathered by the Sanhedrin for temple improvements and things like that and he throws a tax on it and basically takes it all for himself and his purposes. So there's not a great relationship there between the Sanhedrin and Pilate. So this is is kind of the culture that we are in. This Herod, kind of a puppet guy who, cruel, curious about things. The Lord Pilate, who was sort of that politician moving forward, doesn't want to really offend the crowds or or offend Rome, and so he's moving forward. And so Jesus is brought in in the middle of of this scenario, and these will be the major players leading to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. So they bring Pilate, and so they bring Jesus before Pilate, and they make this indictment in verse 2, you see it, and they began to accuse him, saying, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Now, they can't bring him on the charge of blasphemy because Pilate is not going to care about that. So they bring him with these charges that they think is going to get a sympathetic ear from Pilate. One, that he's just an instigator. He's causing problems. He's a, you know, kind of creating this rebellion. As we look through, it's not true in the way they mean it. But at the same time, Jesus does come and he does say harsh things. And he says honest things about the leaders, the religious leaders, and he is creating a stir. The next one that he he won't let them pay taxes to Caesar. That's just an outright lie. We've seen that earlier, where Jesus says, "Give to Caesar what is due to Caesar." The third one, you see how they say? It? They say that he is a Christ, and they slip it in a king. It is, they're wanting Pilate to think this is some sort of challenge to the authority of Caesar that there's some sort of political overthrowing type challenge, which again is, is untrue. And so they lay these indictments. Before him, Pilate listens. He seems to quickly sniff out that there, this is a lie. There, there's not a whole lot sticking here. But he asks Jesus a question. And he asks it in such a way where there is no right answer. Are, are you the king of the Jews? You know, If he says no, well, he is the king of the Jews. He's not going to say when he's establishing his kingdom that he's not. But if he says yes, he knows that Pilate is gonna hear that as I'm a challenge to Caesar. You ever have that happen where you have that question asked in such a way there is no right answer? It would be like, you know, let's say I come to Adam Kronbush and I ask, do you still sleep through every service? You know, How's he answer it? <laughs> he can't say, no. well, no, makes it sound like he used to do it all the time. You know, so it's kind of a no-win situation. Jesus, as always, remains totally in control of the situation with his response. It's what you say. You have said it. Not fighting, not arguing, yet remaining in control of the situation. Pilate finds no guilt. We have kind of this first declaration of Jesus' innocence. There's no guilt in this man. The people don't want any of that though. And you see there's a transition now from just the, the, the religious leadership wanting Jesus to die to now the crowds seem to be growing. It, it's just like a day ago that the crowds, the masses were sympathetic to Jesus and what he was saying. But that's when he looked strong and that's when he had authority and he was putting other people on the defensive. Now he looks really weak, he, he's taken in captivity and they have immediately changed their mind about Jesus. And now the crowds are turning on Jesus, and this is uncomfortable for Pilate because, again, he doesn't want to, you know, make anyone mad. Again, kind of like politicians today, there's no real stance. It's just, you tell me what you want me to say, and then I'll say that. And that's sort of what Pilate is doing. But then he hears one thing about that he's been ministering from Galilee all the way across, and so he goes, oh, Galilee. Is he from Galilee? Well, if he's from Galilee, then let's send him to Herod. Because Herod is in charge of Galilee. It's Pilate's way of getting out, of having to deal with it. He sends him to Herod, and you see Herod's response. Herod's, like, excited to see him. Again, just this weird sort of guy, it seems like, who's curious. He wants to know, can Jesus do some sign for me? Uh, You know, I think he likes that he's going to be in the middle of the spotlight and all the commotion. it will be a chance for his name to be kind of in the middle of everything. Jesus, again, remains in control of the situation. As he won't answer Herod. He gives him no answer in direct fulfillment of prophecy. Isaiah 53 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Which leads to the fulfillment of the rest of Isaiah 53, which is the beating and the mockery and the stripes that he is going to then have to face at the hand of Herod in this cruel curiosity. So they make a mockery of him, they beat him, they send him back to Pilate. Pilate now, again, does a more thorough questioning. And again, he makes this declaration. If, if, as you go down, verse 14, it says, And they said to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people, and after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. This is the second time he's declared his innocence. Luke is highlighting this. Now he brings in Herod. Neither did Herod find him guilty. We have three declarations now of his innocence. This is a weird sort of conclusion to reach. I find him not guilty of anything, so verse 16, I will therefore punish him and release him. You know, I just, I just want to appease him, appease the crowd. So just, I'll put on a show, I'll, you know, we'll punish him and then let him go. Hopefully he'll be appeased. But the bloodlust is growing. In verse 18 we see the crowds rise up and they cry out together. No, away with this man. A A release for us, Barabbas. In verse 20 Pilate addresses them once again desiring to release Jesus. Another declaration of his innocence. Verse 22 A third time he said to them, What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. Declaration after declaration of his innocence. Luke is laboring hard. He is making the point because he wants you to get this in the gospel of certainty that Jesus is innocent. He is the perfect sacrifice. He is without blemish. He is without spot. He is the one who has been prophesied. He is innocent. Of every charge laid against him. As you continue through, I think in verse 41, you come and you see the man who is hanging on the cross next to Jesus, and even he says, You know, we deserve to be here, but you don't. You are innocent. Another declaration of his innocence. The first words Luke records after Jesus dies on the cross are the centurions as he looks up and says, Surely this man was innocent. Six declarations of Jesus' innocence. Luke is building this for us. He is building this theme. It is growing through, and it's doing it for a purpose. We'll see kind of how it comes around. But as he wants you to be fully assured, as he wants you to be certain of the gospel, he wants you to know this, that Jesus is not guilty. Jesus is an innocent man going to the cross. Secondly, we see that Jesus is rejected. Again, this is... In fulfillment, Isaiah 53, a lot of Old Testament scriptures that will speak to the rejection of the Messiah, the one who is coming. There's an odd thing that happens in verse 12. I'd never noticed it before. I don't know if you noticed it as Adam was reading, but in verse 12 it says, And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day, For, for before this they had been at enmity with each other. Kind of an odd note. And then as you look back, you begin to see this rejection of Jesus is going to start including everybody. And you see these odd relationships developing. It starts with Judas, that Judas becomes a partner, a a fellow conspirator with the religious elite who are standing against Jesus. So one of Jesus' own disciples with the religious elite. And then you see it later, the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin finally getting along because of their rejection of Jesus. And then you see now the Sanhedrin and Pilate, you know, mortal enemies, now getting along, now coming to one another and working together, if you will, of the rejection of Jesus. Now Herod and Pilate, again, natural enemies would be competitors for power. They've become fast friends now. And what he's doing here is he's seeing in the rejection of Jesus, he is spreading the guilt out. His own disciple is guilty. Pilate is guilty. Herod is guilty. The Sadducees, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they're guilty. The Gentiles, the crowds, the masses, they are guilty. All of them are rejecting Jesus. You remember those beautiful words, the first chapter of John, that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Or in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It became flesh and dwelt among us. And it continues on. Then it starts using the imagery of light, that Jesus is the light coming into the darkness. But then it says, but his own people are rejecting that light. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. Earlier in Luke, you remember Jesus kind of in that mocking turn says, oh, Jerusalem, who kills its own prophets? All of this in fulfillment. <clears throat> and So Luke is laboring hard as he walks through this story to show you at every turn, Jesus is declared innocent. And one person and one group after another is becoming implicit and is becoming guilty Guilty, guilty, guilty. And we have these two parties emerging, the innocent one and the guilty. And in the middle of it, we have this beautiful picture. Point number three, Jesus' suffering and death is substitutionary. In the midst of all this, You remember what the people, the made-up, trumped-up charges that they're bringing against um, Jesus, is that, you know, he's causing a rebellion, he's a dangerous guy, he's going to be dangerous to your kingdom, all this stuff. So it was kind of tradition that there is going to be one prisoner that's released during this time. And so they think, Pilate again. I'll punish him and then release him. It kind of will get me out of everything. The people in verse 18, they start crying for something different. But they all cried together, away with this man or away with Jesus. Release to us Barabbas. Then it gives kind of his track record. A man who has been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Very similar to what they 're indicting Jesus with this person's already been caught, convicted tried sentenced he 's waiting on death row and they're saying, no, release him look Luke is going to repeat it at in the very end of our section here in verse 24 says, So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, but he delivered Jesus. You realize what Luke is doing here is he's painting for us a picture of the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ, the innocent dying so the guilty can go free. Jesus is innocent of every charge brought against him. Barabbas, there's no argument. He is guilty. Jesus deserves to be set free. Barabbas deserves death. And instead, Jesus is going to die in order that Barabbas can go free. Realize what I'm saying here. This is a physical picture that Luke is drawing for us. I don't know if Barabbas ever came to faith in Christ. That's not what I'm saying at this. It is a picture for us of the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. It wasn't an option that just Jesus can go free. And you know what? We'll just let Barabbas go free as well. No, someone has to die. Only one person can be released. Only one person can go free Jesus' suffering and his death takes place as an innocent one in place of the guilty. This is every single one of our testimony. We should be reading this and putting our minds, putting ourselves in the place of Barabbas. None of us deserve to go free. We deserve death. We deserve bondage to sin because of our sin unto death. Jesus Christ, it's established. He's innocent. Not just because Luke, two men, Herod, Pilate, who don't like Jesus and have nothing, no stake in the game, have said He is innocent. Historically, theologically, it's fact. And yet He is the one that is going to suffer and die he is going to become sin who knew no sin, in order that we may be called the righteousness of God. You have to get this part of the cross right. There is attack on broad evangelicalism on the atonement of Christ, the substitu- substitutionary atonement of Christ. A popular writer has, caused, has called it "cosmic child abuse," that God would send Jesus. To the cross. That doesn't understand the severity of sin. It doesn't understand the magnificence of God's love. It doesn't understand the plan of God, the sovereignty of God accomplished in Christ. In order for you to go free, Jesus couldn't go free. In order for you to be declared not guilty, Jesus had to live innocently perfectly, not guilty, and then die for your sin. He suffered. He bore your stripes. This should create in us humility and hope. Humility that this is what it took to cover our sin. Hope in that Jesus indeed is innocent, the perfect, once for all sacrifice. And you realize what Jesus then bore. He became sin for you. And in becoming sin, He experienced the experience of the damned for you. That weird little phrase in the Apostles' Creed, He descended into hell. That's that's what it's referring to there. It's that idea of Jesus hanging on the cross and screaming, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? what R.C. Sproul calls the cry of the damned. He's going to hell. He's experiencing, he's experiencing God the Father forsaking him. In order that, you might never know what it's like for God to forsake you. And Jesus lived perfectly before the Father, and He loved Him perfectly, and He walked this earth and experienced suffering perfectly. And all of that is accounted to us because Jesus became sin for us, experienced the wrath of God. This is the picture of Barabbas and Jesus, this exchange, this substitutionary atonement. It's a physical picture of the spiritual reality that's going to take place in the cross. We'll see it later in the chapter as Jesus hangs on the cross and He cries out, "Jesus or God, my Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Or think of this as He hangs on the cross and a guilty thief hangs on the cross next to Him. And the man declares Jesus to be Jesus, the innocent one. And you know Jesus... Words to him, today you will be with me in paradise. Now this man's experiencing some suffering as he hangs on the cross. He's being physically tormented. But in the moment, you understand what's happening? Jesus, as he hangs on the cross, is absorbing, is shielding this thief hanging by him from the wrath of God. So as Jesus hangs there and he experiences and cries out, God is forsaking me because I am ugly sin. God now is looking on this thief next to him as his innocent child. That's the theology of the substitutionary death and atonement, the work taking place on the cross. And Luke is laboring hard that you would be certain of this. Jesus is innocent. There's no one else in this scenario who's innocent. They're all guilty. And that is why Jesus is dying, to be a sin bearer. That you might know grace, that you might know the presence of God, that you might know mercy, that you might be called, as we said, even in our catechism this morning, a child, a son of God. And Finally, our last point. Jesus is fulfilling the will of God. Luke, you remember he writes this a few years after the, it's already taken place. He's seeing the challenges in the early church as he's writing this. <clears throat> this is what he wants you to be certain about when faith is being shaken, when there's an attack upon your faith. Remember this. Jesus is innocent. You are guilty. His death was substitutionary for you, and the cross work of Christ is fulfilling the will of God. We we've been laboring. Hopefully, you've picked that up through these last chapters to see that as Judas would, as Judas and Satan would conspire together, and Judas would be kind of given over to Satan, and it seems like Jesus' plan is being. Is being thwarted. It seems like Satan is taking control here. It seems like the Pharisees, the Sadducees, everyone rising up is finally getting the best of Jesus. And yet you see now that all it's doing is working towards their defeat and Christ's victory at the cross. And we saw that even as he prepared the table and had this last supper, that he wasn't going to die until it was his time. We've seen that. No man takes the life of Jesus. He lays it down. And yet, in all of this conspiring, look how Luke ends our text together here in verse 25. He says, verse 25, He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murdered. For whom they'd ask, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. What is he meaning here? He delivered them over to their will. I think he's establishing once again the guilt of all involved. But you've got to remember Luke, when he wrote his gospel account, he's got Luke part 1, Acts part 2. They really do fit together as you would read them. Now for us they're separated by the gospel of John, but, but as you read it You have Luke, part one, Acts. is sort of part two of that book. And so in Acts 2 then, he, he picks up the theme of Peter who had denied Jesus and yet Jesus had looked at him and would not let him fall away. And Peter now becomes this passionate preacher at Pentecost and he is proclaiming The Lord at Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2, verse 22, he says this, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man, delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, You nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. You have the combination of the guilty and the innocent. It was their will. They rejected him as prophecy said they would. They wanted nothing to do with him. But Jesus isn't hanging on the cross because they got the best of him. He's hanging on the cross because he is coming to set them free from their sin. Things didn't get out of, spin out of control for Jesus here. Acts 4 says it for us once again, verses 26 through 28. He, he begins, but Peter begins by quoting from Psalm 2, which we've referred to a couple times. Why did the Gentiles rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. David says this in Psalm 2. We see it fulfilled in Jesus Christ. For truly in this city where we're gathered together against, you, against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, who gathered against him? Both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. That's everybody. He was turned over to their will and they hung him on a tree. They killed him. Guilty. But Peter concludes, they all raised up against him in order to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Jesus is still in absolute control, even in the midst of this torment and suffering. He's in control because he's the innocent and they're the guilty. And they think they're stopping him. They don't realize what they're accomplishing is that Jesus is dying to set them free from their sin. He is dying to be that substitute so that they might know life. So we're going to approach the cross together in the next last final few weeks we have here. We time nicely by the Lord's providence, not ours, with Easter as we, we come towards that in these final moments moments of Christ going to the cross of his resurrection and as you view the cross as you hear Jesus cries upon the cross as we sit back and see historically what's happening Luke wants us to remember these things Jesus is innocent the people rejected him they are guilty but his death is a substitutionary death for those very people for us None of this is getting in the way of God's plan. This is the very pinnacle and accomplishment of God's plan for our redemption. Victory is sealed. The new covenant is inaugurated. The kingdom is set forth at the cross of Christ. So in conclusion, let it bring to us humility then when we look at it, we see, yes, we identify with Jesus and that his death is our death. His resurrection is our resurrection. His ascension will be our ascension. But at the same time, we are to identify with Barabbas that we were guilty and in our place condemned, he stood. Sealed our pardon with his blood. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. For this passage, we thank you for the truth.